Welcome to another episode of the R Squared Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Levy. Today's guest is Tom Haberstroh, an analyst for ESPN.com and ESPN Insider. Tom's here to talk about his journey through the world of basketball media, uh, his experiences working for ESPN, and writing uh, for a diverse audience. We touch on some of his recent work, including looking at the evaporating home court advantage in the NBA and the dominance of the Golden State Warriors. Enjoy. All right, how you doing tonight, Tom? I'm doing great, Ian. How are you, man? I'm doing well. Really appreciate you being on the podcast. Uh, got a lot to talk about, um, but I was hoping we could uh, start with just sort of you and your writing and, and where you sit in the in the basketball media universe because um, it it seems from my perspective it seems like you occupy this really interesting niche where you um, you do uh, some work with analytics. You definitely have sort of a strong flair for it in your work, but you also do original reporting. You're at games talking to players talking to sources and coaches and things like that um and then you also have a really strong understanding of the basketball side um you know x's and o's and and really understanding what's happening on the court so i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your background and then sort of how those how those three pieces fit together for you oh man uh well thank you for the compliments there (laughs) um i i didn't realize i had all those credentials i just kind (laughs) of um i just do what i do uh but it's um a long winding road to get here. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I never thought I would live in Miami Beach, Florida. Um, I'm from Connecticut, <laughs> and uh, I grew up there. And I went to school down south, and went to school for economics. Always had a penchant for numbers. Always big sports fan. Um, I used to keep my own stats. Uh, I was a big college basketball fan and a baseball fan, and so. When I went to college, I ended up doing economics. I took some sports economics classes. Uh, I started a blog that really just I, – I was a huge fan, Ian, of FireJoeMorgan.com. Okay. So I spent a lot of my time trying to emulating their fisking or not making fun of um, – uh, the traditional reporters, but basically uh, I, I kind of use their interpretation of s- using statistics to kind of look at the sport differently and mm-hmm. try to use it as evidence, uh, evidential thinking mm-hmm. um, and showing your work. So you can't just arrive from point A to point B. You kind of have to show how you got there. And so it's not enough to say that David Eckstein's the best player ever because he's really small. Um, like that doesn't work. You have to actually prove it. So I just love their approach and I kind of, you know, I love Joe Posnanski, another huge influence of mine, uh, in college. And, um, I graduated in 2008 Mm -hmm. and, uh, there were no jobs. (laughs) There were no jobs. This was the crash of the century. And I just happened to be graduating, looking for a job in that exact world (laughs) of finance and econ. So, uh, it was terrible. It was a lot of failed interviews, a lot of embarrassment, a lot of shame. Uh, and it was just kind of, it was really humbling. So mm-hmm. I took a job at ESPN for $12 an hour. I took a part-time job at a temp agency in Bristol, Connecticut, uh-huh. um, and worked out of their stats and analysis group for a year or so. And then they asked me if I wanted to do some writing. So I never thought of myself as a writer. And uh, it was it was just kind of a lot of coincidence and uh, opportunities just fell on my plate that I never dreamed would be possible. So one of the things was you know, Rick Buecher and Chris Broussard needed some uh, data to back up one of the points about you know the San Antonio Spurs and how well they draft. And so they came calling to me and saying, hey, do you have any numbers that can prove my point? <laughs> <laughs> so they wanted and, you to show their work for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was but I was an insider researcher at that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they kind of leaned on me to give them some numbers to back them up. Mm-hmm. And so that was very much an internship for myself. I really thought of it that way where I kind of learned the ropes a little bit and how these articles get crafted mm-hmm. and how story ideas come about. And that kind of spurred, uh, no pun intended, the draft <laughs> initiative where I studied the draft value of every draft pick uh, back to 1989, uh, looking at it through the lens of PER and uh, EWA basically using a player value metric to assess draft slots. Mm-hmm. And that kind of just jumped into uh, article writing articles. And um, 
it was always baseball for me. Uh, that's the weird thing about this is I was such a sabermetrics head. I, I worship Tom Tango. I mm-hmm. worship um, Dave Cameron at Fangraphs, uh, Carson over there, uh, Russ, I think Russell Carlton is his name. Basically, all these guys were icons for me, writing for Fangraphs and Hardball Times. And it just so happened that I loved basketball. I played basketball in high school and it became a passion of mine. I just didn't know that stats in basketball were uh, something you could do for your career. So <laughs> it just kind of happened that way. Uh, um, the the time you spent with ESPN Stats and Info, was it was the work um, – that, that experience that you had with, with Broussard and Buecher, was that uh, atypical or was that sort of a lot of what the behind-the-scenes work was? Somebody else is working on an idea. Hey, can you pull the numbers together for me? Oh man, I, I was actually the apparently the first insider researcher they had on staff. Um, <laughs> so what happened was I was, um, you know, GameCast, you know, mm-hmm. GameCast. Yeah. Yeah. So someone actually is doing that. Like someone is actually inputting that data and watching <laughs> the games live. Yeah. That was my job. Uh, I would watch college football games and sit there um, and input on this new pro- program that you would uh, that basically you were trained mm-hmm. um, to say, you know, number thirty seven. Uh, intercepted the ball and ran to the 36 yard line of the home team and he passed it you know this guy number you know 12 passed it for six yards first down or first whatever it is Uh that was my job was to watch these games and input that data and it was a very mindless job but at that stats and info group um, it taught me so many things it taught me about um, fact checking what we called scrubbing Uh uh-huh uh, which is you have to make sure every data point on a box score was correct. So we, what we would do, Ian, is at you know, 1 o'clock in the morning, our shift was 6 p.m. to 2 a.m., uh, 1 o'clock in the morning, once all these West Coast box scores started piling in, you had to fact check it from the website on ESPN.com, the box score on the website, to what it said from the official box score, which was faxed over from, this, from the actual team. So the arena would fax over the official box score, and we would sit there with a sheet of paper <laughs> – and look at your screen and look at the sheet of paper and count, yes, uh, uh, Jason Kidd had seven assists and he had three rebounds and three offensive rebounds, two defensive rebounds, and that equals six. No, that says six off, uh, total rebounds. It should be five. We have to change that. So then you go through the whole pipeline. And so you do that work for uh, a long, long time. And it just so happened that they needed a researcher and they said, hey – who wants to do it? Um, and I raised my hand. And uh, so I became <laughs> the little henchman for a lot of writers on ESPN.com for a while. That's that's so amazing. So we've had this conversation at, at Nylon Calculus and some email threads a lot. And we um, the, Probably the reason that we don't have a solid answer for this is that we haven't asked uh, very many people or haven't asked really loudly. But I, I'm fascinated with play-by-play data because, you know, it's, um, it's, it's underlying sort of all of these different metrics and all of this different work that different people are doing. But uh, the only way I can wrap my head around it is that the, at some level there's a human being who's entering yeah. that data. So even the play-by-play stream, that, that people are scraping and putting together all these metrics, at some level there's there's a human being, right, who's judging whether that was a 16-foot jump shot or a 15-foot jump shot, or you know, who's making the call on whether it was um, you know, uh, a yeah. floating layup or uh, or just a regular layup. It's it's fascinating. I remember a study, um, I can't remember, I think it was Fangraphs, <laughs> they did a study about fly ball versus um, line drives. Mm-hmm. And it all depended on the perspective of the scorekeeper. And they found that like people who are higher up in the stands (laughs) when they're scorekeeping are more likely to to look at a fly ball and call it a line drive because they're looking down on it. And so it looks like a line drive. Whereas if you're like – it's just all this crazy subjective stuff that you don't even think about. You'd think it's objective information. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking at – if you're looking at a game cast – of a baseball game and for a while p- people in this department at stats and info to the best of their ability and their humans would chart exactly where the ball cut where the catcher caught the ball mm-hmm. and that is where that would be fed into all their systems and their databases to say like on this xy coordinate that's where the pitch crossed the plate and so much information is built upon that and it just taught me so much about um, you have to be really careful. You have to be really careful with your data um, and you can't take anything for granted just because you see it in a play-by-play 
uh, you have to understand that a lot of this stuff has to be scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed. And so as much as I'd like to say all of this sport view <laughs> data is 100% infallible, uh-huh. um, I think it's uh, when you're producing that much data uh, every second, you're ju- it's just going to be impossible to be able to track everything um, accurately, 100% accurately. But yeah, there are people who sit there and do that. Um, and I was that one of those people for uh, you know a good year and a half every night, 6 p.m. to 2 a.m., <laughs> Um, charting game by play by play stuff like D3 stuff. Mm-hmm. So it would be stuff that no one even cared about, but ESPN was so proud and still is so proud. That they, they comprehensively cover every single sport, every single D3 school, and it's going to have a box score on the site. So that I, I would like to say, um, that was more like a college experience, like, like an internship than anything. It, it taught me a lot. Just not only that, just work ethic. Like you got to work your way up. Yeah, I, it's just an incredible process. Yeah, I mean, we thinking about data as something that's all sort of coming through technology, and yeah, at, at the ba- base level, there's still sort of a human being with a pencil. Yeah, um, it's yeah. so true. That's <laughs> unbelievable. Um, so, so getting back to the to the work that you're doing now with ESPN, um, one of the things that I'm really curious about it, even though you're sort of under the the uh, the insider umbrella, and you. Um, you, I don't know if it's sort of an explicit labeling, but you're you're sort of one of the the analytics people. Um, is is how you balance writing for an ESPN audience, knowing that um, even you know the narrower insider audience, you're still writing for sort of the biggest sports media entity that there is, and you have the you know one of the biggest audiences uh, of anyone out there, and. Um, sort of how you how you judge the the range of of um comfort that and understanding that people are going to have with analytics and and how that shapes what you can use and what you can't use and and sort of the ways in which you would use it in a piece yeah it's something we struggle with every day Mm -hmm. um i don't think we've figured it out um i don't think anyone has really figured it out is the how many acronyms do you want to put in the acronym alphabet soup right Mm -hmm. how is it, is it worth saying RAPM and explaining the difference between RAPM versus RPM mm-hmm. and, and spend paragraphs doing that or you're going to lose your audience? And it's, very, it's difficult. I mean it's, a, it's a, definitely a balance that we have to strike and I don't think it's, uh, it's an easy thing. I think it's a moving target. Mm-hmm. depends on the content as well. So if we're doing like a really in-depth story about numbers like the home court advantage – we need to bust out some really geeky stuff. <laughs> we need to we need to fact check a lot of these things and talk about significance tests and um, get into variability and get into you know um, a lot of the stuff you get in AP statistics or in college level mm-hmm. statistics. You kind of have to do a little drive by on that. And but if you're doing a story on how Steph Curry and Clay Ma- uh, not Clay Matthews, <laughs> <laughs> I guess football isn't quite out of my brain yet, uh, and Clay Thompson. Um, are the best backcourt in NBA history. Like, I think you want to use the numbers to, um, as part of the story, you mm-hmm. know, that we're at the end of the day, we're storytellers. And I learned this from Bill James is like, he could take the most sophisticated analysis or his own metric. And he could just, it would be such a easy concept to wrap your head around that just the way he wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, and you never even thought twice about what was behind the metric you just knew that this was, um, I don't know, you just kind of trusted him and mm-hmm. you just understood that uh, this was really cool. Something that he wanted, he, he thought was worth talking about um, was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the stuff, I don't want to get too in-depth um, with you know the mechanics of a metric. Mm-hmm. But at Insider, it's a little different. It's a premium product. So you have people who are willing to fork over money to read your stuff. And so just by virtue of that, you know that they're a little more... I don't know. I don't know if advanced is the right word, but they're a little more uh, hungry for that nitty gritty stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, at Insider, it's a little bit different audience and it's tough because you want to reach every fan possible, but you know that that's not going to happen. And in this age, when people just want bite sizes, it's something I've really learned with uh, the big number is uh, the first big number we did, which is, you know, the analytical minute um, telling a story. We, we, spent like I think two minutes and 30 seconds and my editor, my producer was just like, no one's going to watch this whole thing. Like <laughs> people just want a minute. Like they only have a minute 
and people sleep in analytics anyway. Too many numbers, people are just going to pass out from all the numbers. And uh, it was it was a learning process, just knowing that it's tough for people to get through a long article or a long video anymore if it's really intense with numbers or just uh, analytical thinking. So you have to you have to balance it, and it's tough because. Um, you never know the attention span with your audience. Mm-hmm. It's something I struggle with every day is uh, even myself. I'm flipping through my phone, Ian. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm reading this article and then like, I'm like, ooh, uh, I want to read that article. And then I have like 15 articles that <laughs> I wanted to read and I've read just like pieces of it. And I'm sorry to say that happens. And I recognize that that's part of my work too is you have to keep the reader engaged um, and write in a way that doesn't feel like homework. And Mm -hmm. that's a big thing for me is uh, I want to write academic papers. I do, but I recognize that I shouldn't be writing to an academic audience because um, that's not my audience. Uh, My audience is the people that flip on SportsCenter every day and flip through their phones and want good, smart content. Mm -hmm. um, And they don't want to read an academic paper. And that's something I struggled with early on is I tried to I try to write as brilliantly as possible and, and hitting every corner and making sure I checked everything off the checklist for an academic uh, proofed paper mm-hmm. and it didn't really get me anywhere. Um, that's not to say I lose the integrity of my work. It's just um, no one's going to read your stuff and it's not going to be good. And so uh, that is a constant battle, Ian, that I still do to this day. So mm-hmm. I haven't really solved it. <laughs> um, do you feel like, or how do you deal with the issue of, I don't know if educating people is the right word, but um, like you know that there are certain concepts and certain metrics that are going to pop up in your work again and again. And mm-hmm. how do you handle the idea of, um, of sort of of getting people sort of a basic level of of comfort with those things, so that when they read your post the next day and the next day and the next day, they're sort of they're sort of with you. Like re, like real plus minus, I think would be the most obvious example for me in that it's um, it's complex. There are some shortcomings. There are some things that it does really well, and there's some things that it doesn't. You know, maybe it's not so great at, or there's some places where there's some noise. And, you know, every post that you use that wrench, that mentions real plus minus, you know, a, a, a chunk of your audience is going to be interacting with that stat for the first time and is going to have sort of the same questions or the same visceral reactions. This is stupid, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, and uh, and so it's sort of like how do you how do you pull those people along without having to, you know, without having to put a paragraph in about what real plus minus is and what it's not every every, you know in the middle of every piece you do. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I think when you grew up, did you know, I mean, maybe you did because you're brilliant, but did you know how to calculate ERA uh, like when you're a kid or QB rating? No, no, but you still used it, right? Like yeah. you're, you knew what that was. Yeah. And I think you can kind of skip that, um, that process of like walking through someone, the calculations, carry the two mm-hmm. divide by three, like here's a frat and here's yeah. an exponent. And explaining the how the sausage gets made with RPM, um, sometimes you lose the reader and sometimes they don't want that. They just yeah. want, okay, what is this telling me? And mm-hmm. what's telling you is this is the best way we know how to get an in, one, all-in-one impact number. Um, and it's intuitive. So a lot of the things that people struggle with is like – Wind shares per 48 minutes comes out in a screwy fraction where it's like 0.23957 yeah. and no one has a good handle on that. But yeah. the irony, the weird thing is, Ian, it's like everyone knows what a that a 300 batting percentage, like a 300% batting average is really good. Mm-hmm. Like we know that. Yeah. It's, but it's the same thing. It's 0.300 and yet we grew up with that number and we know what it means. And so for a lot of people – when they look at RPM, they just need to – they just need to – the, the first obstacle is understanding that we can try to dumb down, boil it down into one number and say this guy is a plus three player. Mm-hmm. Uh, that every 100 possessions, he's going to improve your score, your team's uh, efficiency by plus three. And that's intuitive. That's intuitive in the sense that I know that this guy is going to improve my team on average. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think – that's important is getting that number. 
Um, in the same way that war in baseball, you could say that this guy was like a three win player last year. Fans understand what that means. That that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And so it's tough because I remember, and I'm using a lot of baseball analogies, but I think it's, it's relevant for NBA and basketball because we're coming in like 10 years after the fact, but like OPS, like OPS was mind blowing when it came out. I was like, that's so, it's brilliant. Like, on base percentage plus slugging and then you get you know both best of both worlds and you put it together and it's great and then you realize there's this whole problem with it is that there's no fielding like mm -hmm. we're basing like fire joe morgan was basing their analysis about players based on ops and five years later we learned that that was kind of archaic that that was kind of not dumb but it was very small you know a smaller piece of the puzzle than we wanted it to. So I think that's where we are with metrics like PER, which is like, I think PER is very much like OPS where we're, we're grading a player uh, on his productivity in the box score. And that can get us like 70% there. Um, but that other 30% is super important. I'm just using ballpark. Yeah. <laughs> but that other 30% is really important defense. And we still haven't gotten that. And hopefully RPM gets us there yeah. or a version of it. Um, the the sport view stuff that's available now that's public on on nba.com from from last year and this year it seems like um i guess i don't know uh cuz i you know the the audience that i deal with at nylon calculus is is pretty specific and is much more you know niche than than uh, than espn but um it seems like on some level those numbers are more accessible to people because they are dealing with sort of really specific concrete skills even though they are new and maybe things that we haven't measured before like people understand what drives are and what yeah. um you know like uh narrowing down uh shot contest to, to the painted area and things like that oh yeah i mean that's the brilliance of sport view is that it's quantifying things that we already talk about mm -hmm. um dribbles uh passes contested shots uncontested shots rim protection these are all concepts that for so long, it was part of the NBA vernacular. And so when you talk to a coach and say, this guy is such a better shooter off the dribble than he is off the pass, mm -hmm. like now we can actually put numbers to that and quantify it. And so that's the power of, um, of, of sport view. I and mean, we, we at ESPN, we talk to, you know, we go to games and we cover them and we talk to coaches. And for the longest time, you could just throw these concepts around and say, like, that guy's a good open shooter. That guy's a good driver. That guy's a good kick and, uh, you know, driving kick player. Mm -hmm. uh, that guy boxes out really well. He just makes his teammates better. And there was just – there was no proof. Like, you could just say that and there was no <laughs> way to back it up. And so for a lot of times, you just believed these things and they mm -hmm. ended up to be false, you know, myths is just – you can actually quantify – actually, when that guy is open, he's a terrible shooter. Um, I remember uh, Mike Bibby in 2011, he got traded – he didn't get traded. He was signed by the Miami Heat midseason. I remember this like it was yesterday. We were at the practice at the Miami Heat Arena, American Airlines Arena, that yellow gym of theirs and Mike Bibby sitting there. And I asked him this question like, hey, so do you think your three-point percentage is going to get better now that you have all this space? In Miami, like you were operating in a crunched uh, offense in Washington and maybe not the best offense in Atlanta. And now you got all this space with LeBron James, Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. Like your three point percentage is going to go skyrocketing. And he just looks at me and he goes, yeah, um, I am not a good open shooter. I actually hate being <laughs> open. I'd much rather have a shot contest than have an open shot. And I was like, no, like that. No, you're just. No, there's no way that that's true. Like I thought there was no way that a guy would openly admit or think that he was a bad open shooter and that the space was actually going to do bad for him. Mm -hmm. And turns out, Ian, like Synergy at the time, there was no sport view at the time, but Synergy, when you looked at it, he was horrible as an open shooter. And when there was a shot contest, he was a better shooter percentage-wise. And it was... One of those things that 20 years ago, I would have called that guy's bluff and said he was just trying to be you know, humble mm -hmm. and he was just trying to say, you know, you know it's not going to be that easy. But it's true. Like some of these guys are just weird quirks like that, that now it's with sport view and synergy, uh, you know, five years ago, you could prove and it's just kind of remarkable. Um, <laughs> that is pretty incredible. And it's funny because uh, intuitively – 
if I was thinking of my own terrible play on the basketball court, I would think of myself in that Bibby camp. Like if I'm wide open, I immediately am in my head and I'm feeling that pressure and I'm like, oh, everybody's watching me and I'm wide open, which means I have to yeah. make it. Whereas if there's somebody flying at me, I don't think about it. I'm just throwing it. And then it's it's okay if I miss and somebody's flying at me. But um, yeah, somebody at the professional level having that perception of themselves well, is pretty well, crazy. Yeah. One thing, uh, Dwayne Wade, we, we had this uh, earlier this year. I got some gravity scores and I, I made my own respect rating mm-hmm. uh, using SportView um, you know, data, yeah. uh, player tracking data. And one of the things was that Dwayne Wade was this really magnetic player on the wing. And mm-hmm. it was bizarre because you didn't really think of him as a floor spacer because he didn't have a good three-point shot. Uh, a bat and he didn't have one. He was He's just a bad three-point shooter historically. So mm-hmm. I – I went up to him. I'm like, did you know that you have a lot of gravity? Like you have a lot of magnetic pull on the defense. He's like, I know. Like <laughs> I've been waiting for someone to quant- prove that because I'm feeling it in my head and these guys aren't leaving me. They're, they're sticking on me like I'm Ray Allen and I've no one believes me. And thank you. Thank you so much for proving it. And it's so funny with this data. Um, players already think like this. Players <laughs> already think this way and they – are dying for people to confirm their weirdest like beliefs um, because 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, there was just no way to prove or quantify any of these, you know, instincts that they had. And for Dwayne Wade, like he says he doesn't like stats and numbers, mm-hmm. but deep down, if it proves that he's not crazy, he's all about <laughs> it, you know? Yeah. You know? Um, so, so, uh, interacting with, uh, with the heat, you've been covering the heat. This is your third or fourth season covering the heat. So I've been down here in Miami for four years and I go to pretty much every home game. Uh-huh. Um, I don't travel, have not traveled with them only usually in the, in the finals or in yeah. the playoffs while I travel. So I don't specifically cover them. I, I stopped doing yeah. that, um, a couple years ago, but I do, Go to every one of their games, their mm-hmm. home games. So inevitably, I'm very close with a lot of the players there. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, at least I talk to them a lot be, just by virtue of being there a lot. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I've am i been in that locker room through good times and bad. This season, it's been very rough. And yeah. it's kind of weird because I wanted to do more reporting on the other teams. And it just so happened. I promise you it's not because the Heat aren't <laughs> doing well. It just so happened that they ha- – you know. <clears throat> Josh McRoberts is struggling, or and then he got hurt. So um, it's just it's a fascinating team because you have Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh, two All Stars, and the rest of the roster is so barren and it looked so bleak um, and such a divergence from what they were used to the last you know four previous years. And then this Hassan Whiteside thing happens, and yeah. it just flips everything completely on its head. I, I, he is Lynn Sanity down here in South Florida. It's hard to, it's hard to explain, but um, they can't stop talking about the guy. And, and honestly, I can't either. It's, you never really see something like this happen. Yeah, it's been fun to watch. And so I'm curious about the Heat specifically because they, you know, with LeBron there over the past couple of years, they were a team who sort of um, played to some of these sort of analytic concepts. And obviously it's difficult to know exactly what teams are using behind the scenes and exactly um, – you know where which which decisions are related to analytics and in what ways and that sort of stuff but um you know talking with the players there and i guess you covering other teams as well talking to players from other teams are you feeling like players are more uh aware of analytics that it's more um that it's more uh sort of embedded in what they're doing or or is the general perception that it's still we play basketball and, and maybe you guys have numbers that are sort of confirming what we already know or the ways that we already think about basketball. Yeah. So some players are into it. Some are not. Uh-huh. I mean, um, uh, like Tony Douglas and Shane Battier used to play with each other in Houston uh-huh. and they were in the heat locker room together. Uh, I think it was last year. Yeah. Um, and Shane Battier busted out one of his like packets that uh-huh. Daryl Morey and his, you know, geek staff, printed out for them in Houston and Tony Douglas just looks over and is like, you're still looking at that stuff, man. <laughs> and he's just cracking at him and just making him feel all nerdy and stuff. And of course LeBron's laughing and Tony <laughs> Douglas just like, man, you know, I swear sometimes you, you, you don't even, you don't even watch, you know, film or anything. You're just looking at the stats and, and, and Shane just laughing. And um, it's funny. Some guys, it's just like anything else. Some guys have, 
um, an appetite for it. Mm -hmm. Some have the aptitude for it. um, And some just are freakishly uh, have an encyclopedic mind that they're already thinking in numbers. They just don't know it. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that I've been doing is uh, these stat quizzes called IQ where I I quiz guys on their uh, stats. Mm -hmm. So like um, I was talking to Dirk Nowitzki the other day about his stats and they have just they, they think in numbers. They'll they'll be like, oh, I definitely have more than 500 assists from that guy. And uh-huh. I'm like, how do you know that? Like, how do you <laughs> how do you know that? But I guess what they they study their box scores every night. Uh-huh. Um, but these guys, they definitely they have a lot more information at their disposal. And whether they like to admit it or not, I think they are hungry for as much information as possible because it's so cutthroat. It's uh-huh. such a competitive nature that um if something's gonna help you hit that jump shot late in games if you know that that guy's gonna uh stunt that pick and roll or he's gonna hedge hard that might help you and yeah. i think they're willing to um listen to that <laughs> that's funny a couple of years ago i went to the hall of fame and in, uh, induction ceremony uh, the year gary payton was inducted and i was talking to him at the press conference before and i asked him if he if he looked at his box scores after the game or he paid attention to his numbers and his answer was basically man we were too busy thinking about where we we're gonna go party after the game yeah. was over <laughs> oh, <laughs> was like, but they looked at it man yeah. i mean lebron lebron james the guy who um, seems to think of basketball on a whole nother level, probably doesn't even need a box score because he probably memorizes everyone's stats and as it's happening. He study, he grabs the box score after every quarter and mm-hmm. he studies it. Like these guys for sure live and breathe numbers, whether they, I mean, um, you know, how much they get paid or how much that guy gets paid. Mm-hmm. Like they definitely focus on numbers because it's part of their lives and it's mm-hmm. part of their livelihood is making sure their numbers look good because at the end of the day, that's what they're going to be measured against. Covering games, do you sort of have a reputation now with the players as like a a numbers guy or a stats guy? Uh, (laughs) uh, uh, Sometimes they'll be like, you know, Shane Shane Battier last year and and for the last few years, whenever there was like a stat or something, he'd, you know, call my name out and say, Aversher, you have that stat? And I'll be like, no, I'm not, I'm not a robot. Uh, But, um, not really, uh, only because um, there's just not there's not really much discussion about stats in a post game um, interview. Like mm-hmm. it's more about feelings, and yeah. that's the traditional line of reporting. Is like when you took that shot in the in, in the mm-hmm. corner with four seconds left, like what was going through your mind? And it's not really about numbers. So no, my name, <laughs> I'm not like the go to like stats like guru in in the room, um, but. I've been very fortunate, Ian, that a lot of the guys in the locker room think that way. So Shane Battier, uh-huh. uh, Ray Allen, um, Chris Bosh, uh, a lot of those guys just just think on an entirely different plane than a – not necessarily a better plane, but just think in a way that um, lends itself to numbers very, very well. So <laughs> I've been very, very fortunate in that sense. What was the transition like for you going from sort of doing stats and info stuff and research to to writing articles to all of a sudden you're at the game and you're talking to players about it? Uh, I still remember the first locker room I went into. It was um, at TD Garden. Uh, It was Cleveland Cavaliers versus the uh, Boston Celtics. I think it was 2009. I want to say, and I was I was put on to assignment for a story on the value of charges, mm-hmm. and I was supposed to go in and interview players in the locker room about the value of a charge because mm-hmm. I had all these numbers saying that you know I just got a batch of charge numbers and I wanted to show like this guy has fifty of them and it's kind of think of it as a steal or a block, mm-hmm. um, and it's just not in the box score. So I went up to Anderson Verjao, and um, I was so nervous, and I just remember shaking and being so nervous and I probably just said something so stupid in the beginning and made a fool of myself, but he was so nice. And I just remember him being so friendly. He had a huge smile on his face. Like, Hey man, I could tell you're nervous. Like, let's talk this out. Like, and he was so nice and I'll never forget it. I used to live in Brazil when I was a little kid in Sao Paulo. And so I went up to him and I broke the ice that way. And it was just like you were talking to someone you knew for, for years. And it was just, it was, that icebreaker was huge. That barrier was huge for me. And I, I don't know if I didn't have Andy Verjao, if I would ever be talking in a locker room ever again. He was, he was just, and Leon Poe was great. Um, and another thing from that was 
Jackie McMullen, she was just a giant um, in our industry, but honestly, she is tall. She's like one, <laughs> I want to say 6'2". And she was talking to Shaq. Shaq was playing for Cleveland at the time. And she was talking to him. And I remember, you know, I, I, I stood next to her and I didn't really think twice about it. I just was like, oh my goodness, Shaq is enormous. <laughs> and then I walked out of the locker room and I stood next to Jack McMullen and she's towering over me, like towering <laughs> over me. And I remember standing, like seeing her talk to Shaq and she just was dwarfed by Shaq. So I just thought she was, you know, a normal, you know, lady height of like 5'8", five, 5'6", five, <laughs> five, And she just like, spoke down to me and I, I will never forget it. Like Jack McMullen, uh, she's tall and next to Shaq, she doesn't look it, but then again, no one does. So that was, that was my first locker room experience and it, it was definitely a learning curve. Um, and you just have to get over it. You just, they, they do this for a living. There are plenty of awkward kids doing the same thing. I mean, I was, uh, 23 years old. I didn't know what I was doing. I never took a communication class. I never took a journalism class. So I was just winging it completely and it was very nerve wracking. And to this day, you still get goosebumps. You still get, you know, those butterflies uh, when, especially when Greg Popovich is at the mic and you have to ask him a question. Uh, You never know what you're going to get. Yeah, I've I've heard some stories. Um, So I wanted to, I wanted to make sure that we had some time to talk actual basketball stuff too. And uh, uh, we, uh, I pulled up a couple of things that you'd written recently that I thought were really interesting that uh, I wanted to to talk with you about a little bit. Um, And one of the first ones was uh, the thing you wrote recently about the Golden State Warriors and about how good they've been this year. Um, And then one of the, one of the most interesting things was that, that outlier status they have as a great defensive team that also plays at a really fast pace and so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what the what the numbers were there yeah so it's just something I've noticed um, that the Golden State Warriors average 101 uh, possessions every 48 minutes they're number one in pace factor mm-hmm. and they're also the best defense and which was just mind-blowing to me because traditionally we we like to think of Chicago uh, grind it out Indiana Pacers, smash mouth, uh, you know, 82 to 81 games. And here we have a team playing like the D'Antoni Suns and playing just crushing defense, just suffocating defense, and no one can score against them. Um, And you just never see that. And I was like curious, and this is how, Ian, probably a lot of your work goes, (laughs) is like, huh, I wonder if that's an outlier. I wonder how often that happens. And then you just kind of dig in. And you, you know, what people don't realize in our line of work um, with research and stats is you probably run into nine dead ends before you get to that 10 that books <laughs> that, just, that you just see it and you're like, oh, it's amazing. I finally found the nugget yeah. that I'm going to really dig into and, and try to tell this story. And that was one of them was, you know, initially I thought it was weird to have a number one fastest team and a number one defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't realize quite how historic it was until I dug into the numbers and found out that we had never seen this before, that a number one pace factor the fastest team in the nba has not been the number one defense ever and there's a negative correlation um and so our audience probably understands what that means but typically when you have a fast team that means they're a crap defense and Mm -hmm. when they're a good you know defense uh they tend to be a slow offense or a slow uh pace team and not the case with the golden state warriors they're they're in their own league right now and it's funny because this is sort of like the the extreme and most perfect example of why we look at uh, stats per hundred possessions instead of per game, you know, is the, is the idea that per game totals are affected by pace. And so a team that plays at a slow pace, but maybe is not that good defensively, uh, you know, will have low points allowed per game totals. And so they're, this is sort of like the perfect example skewed in the opposite direction where their you know, their defense is actually really good and it maybe doesn't look that great by per game numbers. Yeah, I think let's see. Uh, I think they're seventeenth in opponent uh, points per uh-huh. game. So you would never look at that and say, "Oh, that's a great defense." Um, and I didn't. I guess I should have gone into that a little bit more. I think mm-hmm. in retrospect, I should have gone in uh, how pace can affect, uh, can inflate, um, you know, per game numbers, uh-huh. but. Uh, I do think that when you watch the Golden State Warriors and a lot of our readers watch the game, they know that they got great defenders. And it's not just you know about their that they allow 99.8 points per game. It's 
It's that they have uh, Draymond Green switching on everything, stealing that ball, using great hands, getting into the passing lane, screaming at the top of his lungs what kind of coverage they're doing. Andrew Boga is just plugging that paint, uh, being so smart, being really dirty. Uh, <laughs> and you have Clay Thompson, who's just so sound, so fundamental, and so long. You know, he's six seven playing at the two. You just um, people don't realize that it's the same reason why people uh, underrate Clay. I'm uh, not Clay. Uh, Cal Corver, the other K. Cal uh-huh. uh, Corver is a much better defender because of his length, and he's able to move his feet. Um, and so they just got an awesome defense, and that's a story that needs to be told. Is uh-huh. coaches? Um, I, I, I spoke to a couple of them before I did the story, and they said, "Man, it is so hard to do. Uh-huh. It is so hard to do to get people to buy in to playing with a high energy on defense and a high energy on offense." Um, it takes the right personnel and it takes the right chemistry and it takes the right leadership from the coaching staff. And look, Ron Adams, Alvin Gentry, uh, you look at Steve Kerr's staff, it is stacked with talent. And so just, it's a fascinating story to tell. I got to give a shout out to Ethan Strauss. Uh, he wrote a brilliant essay, um, not an essay, I would say a feature, um, on the defense and it's just a fascinating team. And I think we'll be talking about them for years to come in the same way we talk about the, the D'Antoni sons. Mm-hmm. Well, and, uh, in terms of historic numbers, I'm not exactly sure where they are right now, but I know for much of their season, uh, for much of the season, their, um, adjusted net rating. So if you look at their offensive rating and defensive rating and adjust for the quality of their opponents, it was like, uh, in the top seven all time and the other six in the top seven were like all Michael Jordan Bulls teams. Yeah. It's crazy. And I don't, and it's a weird thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. People don't believe until they see it. You know, they don't seeing is believing in the NBA very much. So in any sport is they won't believe that they're actual title contenders until they actually do it. You know, it's weird. You can, you can spit out all the stats that you want and all the research and, and point out that the last six teams that were as good in point differential, they all won the title or whatever it is. Uh-huh. And people just can't get wrap their heads around that this team that plays at a fast pace and has this ankle weak ankled, you know, <laughs> point guard who looks like a high schooler out there is a juggernaut. Yeah. Is it's just hard for some people to wrap their heads around it. But for sure, um, analytics or numbers or uh, anything that we do right now with these numbers, they're out to prove that these Golden State Warriors are legit. Um, and you ask opposing teams who get blown out by them every night, they are absolutely legit. Um, so I want to get your opinion too specifically on Draymond Green because he's sort of been a breakout star this year, especially sort of for people who pay attention to analytics because his you know things like his real plus minus um, are really, really strong. And um, so I'm wondering, I just was thinking about him and the, the defensive mold that he fits in and how um, – like when you have a when you have a player who can sort of slide back and forth between the three and the four like he does, usually the versatility is or usually the combination of sort of skill versatility and size is always about the offensive end. And when you have those three four tweeners, it feels like the question is inevitably who are they going to defend and and can they defend one or both of those positions effectively? And it's it seems like it's so rare to have a player like him who can actually. Uh, slide back and forth between both of those positions and defend them both really, really well, you know, at an elite level. Yeah, it's it's one of those kind of um, the holy grail of analytics right now mm-hmm. is quantifying versatility mm-hmm. and being able to defend multiple positions. I don't think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think we've really gotten a good handle on it. Am I right? No, no, I don't think we have either. Yeah, so like a couple years ago, I remember the Miami Heat were trying to push LeBron James as Defensive Player of the Year candidate um, or for the award, I, I mm-hmm. should say, and uh, their whole, full, you know, their whole thing was one through five. Like yeah. Eric Spolster coined one through five that he can guard one through five, and that puts him above everyone else because that versatility unleashes all his power defensively, mm-hmm. and it, it causes them to be such a more high impact, uh, high leverage defense. In the same way that Draymond Green, I mean, the the ability to go from guarding Zebo to guarding Chris Paul. Um, night to night is just so hard. It's so hard. Not not just Ian, not just the ability. I mean, plenty of players could probably do it, 
but no one really wants to do it. You know, like <laughs> nobody really wants to get their, you know, the ankles broken by Chris Paul mm-hmm. or, or uh, Russell Westbrook. Like no one really wants to guard those guys because it's it could be embarrassing. You could be put on your ass. And it, you could be on Vine and uh, the GIF is going to be all over the internet in three seconds mm-hmm. uh, because you decided you thought you could guard um, you know, John Wall at the top of the key. And mm-hmm. Draymond Green is totally cool with that. He's up for the challenge. So in the same way that Sean Marion could do it, um, you know, Ron Artest, the guy you could bang down low and mm-hmm. guard point guards in his, in his heyday, those guys are super valuable, and uh, I think when you see Ron Artest win a Defensive Player of the Year award, I think I think Draymond Green's right there. Um, I, he would be my pick for Defensive Player of the Year right now. As much as I love Tim Duncan, mm-hmm. um, he is uh, Draymond Green's my pick. Do you think he really realistically has a shot at winning? Uh, I mean, that's Ethan I know that's Strauss sort of a whole, I know that's a whole it. a whole separate question. You know, who how many is articles it? can Ethan Strauss write about it? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's it's interesting. I, I think we are. I would like to say that we're getting uh, a better grasp of guys like him. Mm-hmm. And so the numbers and RPM and defensive plus minus, um, that can help us get there. And hopefully hopefully he gets his due because he has been amazing this season um, and players hate going against him. So uh, I, I don't think he's going to win it. I don't because he doesn't have the block and steals number. The eye pop, he has both of them, yeah. but they're not eye popping. So, mm-hmm. and he does he's not strong. He's not like, he's not like Ron Artest where he's, he looks like a sculpture out there. Like yeah. he's made out of marble. <laughs> um, he's kind of doughy. Um, and so he doesn't fit the prototype of what we imagine to be a lockdown defender. But in many ways, uh, that's what makes him so brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, uh, the other article of yours that I wanted to touch on, uh, before we run out of time was the, the big home court advantage thing that you worked on with Steve Alardi. Um, and, uh, so, uh, I, I won't uh, repeat the whole thing. Uh, we'll let you talk about it, but, but basically the findings were that over the past, uh, over the past couple years, the home court advantage, uh, has sort of been evaporating. And then particularly over the past two years, uh, it's as steep a decline as, as we've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, uh, you just said it. Um, it's the the point differential is usually around three, three and a half, and right now it's at two, two, um, and it's kind of interesting. It's we Henry Abbott and I talked about it for a while. Uh, we wanted to present it as a mystery because <laughs> it is a mystery. Is what is going on here? Um, and so we did our research. Um, Steve already ran the significance test to kind of make sure that this was legit, um, because we didn't want to just make something out of randomness, mm-hmm. um, and turn an anthill into a mountain. We didn't want to do that. So we, we checked off everything that we could and we started reporting and I asked around to people to try to get their best theories. And it basically was, it came down to three factors. Um, one was Threes are becoming so important and ref influence is just not nearly as high. And so it's not so much that the refs are less uh, rigged going for the home team. It's that they're getting removed from the play altogether because the Mm -hmm. three-pointer, it just doesn't have much referee influence. Um, So that was a big thing. Another was rest and basically the visitor disadvantage is disappearing. So Mm -hmm. instead of thinking of it as the home court advantage, think of it as the visitor's disadvantage when you're – sleeping um, on the road in a coach seat. It's just so different than being on pampered on these planes. And I think on the road, life is much different now than it was 20 years ago. Like you <laughs> said, um, I was out drinking on the road. If you ask Gary Payton, I don't know how many players are doing that anymore. I <laughs> think there are players who do it, but they're getting smarter about how to take care of their bodies and just their health. And so you're not playing on one leg on <laughs> these back-to-backs anymore. And then the third uh, theory is that just – home crowds aren't as influential anymore and that they're distracted and they're in this iPhone, smartphone, Twitter, Facebook, social media age Uh um, that they need immediate gratification. And if there's a 24 second shot clock, you may pay attention for 10 of those and maybe you miss a great play and you're caught behind. So all really great theories. And Kevin Pelton came up with a great one too, which is uh, the parody in the league where you have um, just really good teams and really bad teams uh, and for some reason, this creates this elixir of disappearing home court advantage. So that's another one. I'd be curious if you've thought about it. 
Um, I haven't thought about it much. The obvious one for me, and you guys, and you mentioned it, and it was in the article as well, was the idea of variance, that as teams go more to three-pointers, there's more variance, yes. which means we're getting sort of more uh, more wild results. Um, yes. yeah. the, the visitor disadvantage disappearing is, a, is something that's interesting to me because I know there's been so much talk about, uh, I don't know, actually at the league level, but in the media there's been so much talk about like shortening the schedule and that, you know, the players' bodies are wearing down and things like that. And, you know, that if it turned out that some of this effect was because um, that the travel is maybe not as hard as it was, you know, 10, 15 years ago, um, then then I wonder if that, that argument for shortening the schedule, reducing the regular season still exists. Well, I do think that they've added more back-to-backs this year. Mm-hmm. So as much as they have improved on their knowledge and their responsibility over their bodies – um, I still think there's a ways to go and that the league has a lot of ground to cover on the fact that we have 82 games where these guys are all Hercules out there. Mm-hmm. They're all gladiators just built so strong, so big. These collisions are so high impact. And I just don't know if, you know, I just don't know if this is the best way to go about it. So mm-hmm. as much as I want to say everyone's getting smarter about their bodies – there's just only so much you can do to protect yourself from going in at uh, a 275-pound and Andre Drummond at the rim and, uh-huh. and needing him there and being able to do that 70 times a night in pick and rolls. Uh-huh. Um, that, that takes a huge, huge carnage on your body. So uh, I, I do think we still have a ways to go, but definitely teams are getting smarter about how to protect these players on the uh-huh. road. So on a personal level, noticing that this home court advantage is sort of disappearing to some degree, uh, is this a good thing, a bad thing, or just a thing uh, in terms of in terms of how you're enjoying basketball? You know, is it is it good to sort of have that competitive advantage removed and and sort of make it more about talent and that sort of thing? Yeah, like I do think there's something to that, right? Is we want to have these games pure and mm-hmm. not colored or tainted by a third party that's supposed to be objective. Yeah. So on that level, yes, it's good. It's a good thing that it's just being decided or more so now by the players that are on the court. Um, But on the other hand, there is this kind of just human nature aspect of wanting to go watch your home team knowing (laughs) that you have an impact on that, right? Mm -hmm. Like maybe it's an illusion. Maybe it's all fake. Yeah. That fans – go to the games thinking that they're the sixth man or woman, like that they're there to influence the game. And that, that guy, that, that terrible player who's at the free throw line mm-hmm. and I'm yelling at him that I actually impacted that missed free throw. Like the, mm-hmm. that power might be drawing me to games more. I don't know. I mean, it, I would certainly not like the idea if I'm a fan knowing that I have zero influence on the game. Like mm-hmm. no matter how hard I scream <laughs> – that just doesn't matter. And the, all it was all along was referee bias. Uh-huh. So, you know, like I don't, I don't think that might be a good thing. And I think there are people out there in the league who say that home bias is a good thing, that we should encourage refs to play it up to the home crowd because it's an entertainment product. It's more entertaining if, a, if the home team is going nuts and, and cheering and – you feel going home that you did something and you helped that guy win, hit that shot. Like that's a gratifying feeling as a fan. So I go both ways. On one hand, I want a pure game, not sullied by a third party that shouldn't have their hands in the game or swaying it one way or the other. But on the other hand, I do recognize that you know if I go to a Red Sox game, I do want to feel like me cheering and me jeering or <laughs> doing that stuff I'm not doing it because I'm an idiot. I'm doing it because maybe it just moves the needle just a milli- millimeter in, in the uh, favor of the Red Sox. But maybe I'm crazy. It's funny because the home court advantage, I mean, you could almost make an argument that that it, it would increase engagement uh, on both sides, you know. So um, the home court fans feel like they, you know, are involved and have a role in helping their team win and the – the visiting fans feel like they got jobbed and they can complain about the reps and there's, you know, there's, uh, I mean, it's it's a negative sort of engagement, but you know, then, then people can be online complaining about how they got ripped off and the refs are terrible. And there's, you know, there's, there's more people talking about the game either way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Some people just exist to yell at refs. I mean, it's so (laughs) weird. Like there are some people, I find them insufferable. Uh, I can't stand them where they're like, 
yeah, the, the game is rigged and every call you can just tell that it's, you know, that there's some some guy up on high in the league office, David Stern, Adam Silver. They're, they're rigging it. You know, yeah. it always comes out, you know, the draft, <laughs> like the draft. You could make an argument that the draft is rigged for all 30 teams, yeah. all 30 teams. <laughs> like you could come up with any theory for any team. Like if yeah. you just picked a team out of the hat, like I could tell you why they deserve a team. Like why do they, they deserve the number one pick and why the league would want to rig it for them. And you could just do that with anything. Uh, you can just, you know, referees and just all these conspiracy theories. Uh, that fan, I don't know how you live with yourself every night if you think that every game is rigged uh, to make you upset and make you miserable. Yeah, my uh, my lovely wife, uh, whenever the playoffs roll around and uh, and an underdog wins, she she will, without fail, she'll say, oh, it's rigged so that it'll go seven games seven. and that the league makes more money. And to be honest, I have no idea if she actually believes this or not or and is ju- or is just saying it to, to drive me nuts because it without fail it just it makes me crazy and i get i get so nuts i sort of can't even have a like a, a a rational conversation i'm just like that's insane like how could they rig the games and well you know why would they do that and and uh and yeah she she probably just has a good laugh about it well, well put it this way if every home team wins their games how many does it go go seven games <laughs> seven games so maybe it's not a good thing for the business if uh if if this home court disappears, because then the game, the series might be shorter, a lot more variance. So <laughs> yeah, it, it's an interesting question because if you ask the league about it, they don't really know what they would be happy with. Like, <laughs> you know, like they do want fans, I would imagine. I don't know this for a fact, but they, I'm guessing they do want fans to feel like they have an influence on the game. And they <laughs> do like the idea of a home court advantage because it makes you feel part of the game, you know, and that just very visceral part of being a fan and being a part of the action, if you take that away, um, I don't know if that's a good thing. I don't know. So this this story is just beginning, by the way. Mm-hmm. Like I think this is uh, – it, it bleeds into a lot of different realms of the sport, mm-hmm. uh, business side and basketball side, uh, referees. Like it's – it's definitely something that's going to be ongoing and, and we're probably going to be digging into it more as the season goes on. Cause as we saw in the playoffs, mm-hmm. the home court advantage disappeared last year in the regular season and it carried over into the postseason. So I'm curious to see what happens this time around. So do you, do you guys have specific plans for more reporting on this or is it just kind of wait and see and watch what happens? Um, I don't but, know. You know. It's I, on I the think, radar. I think it's still on our radar. I think we're just still monitoring it. Um, and uh, it's such a big story that I would be stupid not to, to keep digging and trying to figure out what the heck is going on because it is a historic event. Like it is, I mean, I don't want to say it's landing on the moon, but I'm saying it's a, it his, you know, historically we've never seen this happen. So it, what is driving it? And, uh, and we've gotten so many theories about it and no one's been like ironclad. This is definitely what it is. Like mm-hmm. I haven't heard that yet. Um, it's been a lot of, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, you know, it could be this. So I don't think really people understand exactly what's happening here. Um, and so we're kind of leaving it up to the readers too and, and everyone out there uh, to kind of voice their opinion on what they think is happening because I, I, don't, I don't really know exactly what it is. Did you, uh, growing up in Connecticut, did you grow up as a Celtics fan and do you still have uh, an emotional relationship with the team or has, has writing sort of stamped that out? You know what's funny is I grew up a huge college basketball fan. Uh-huh. I was a huge Tar Heel, uh, UNC Tar Heels fan because my grandparents uh, lived in North Carolina and would always give me clothes. Like for Christmas, <laughs> I would get like the ugliest hat you could ever imagine. Um, and I wore it and I loved Carolina blue. There's just something about it um, that I loved. And let's be honest, they had so much history, Michael Jordan, uh-huh. um, that it's very hard not to like them. But I was a much bigger college basketball fan than an NBA fan. And at, where I lived was New York Knicks country. Um, and so I didn't grow up a diehard Knicks fan. I actually grew up a Celtics fan, but it was not nearly as strong as it was for college basketball. Um, and so when I got to the NBA and covering the NBA, I didn't really have much fandom to kill uh, <laughs> to make myself objective it was more just like i love this game i love basketball and i love all these players playing at the highest level so 
my dad grew me up as a Red Sox, Celtics, and did not care for football. So he <laughs> let me choose my football team. And at the time, I really liked the Giants. So the New York Giants, I'm we- this weird, like, like hybrid, uh, bastardized fan where I, I'm a fan of the New York Giants, the Boston Red Sox, and the Boston Celtics. But of all three, the one I'm most diehard about is the Celtics. I mean, not not Celtics, the Red Sox. I'm all about the Red Sox. Yeah, that's a pretty uh, that's I, a pretty scandalous. <laughs> uh, I know it's group tough. of teams to root for, but Connecticut is that way. Like <laughs> Connecticut is, it's. I mean, it's part of living in Connecticut that is so weird. Is that half the fans hate each other because <laughs> half the half the city half the state is divided at Hartford and down. Um, I grew up in a town that was like 95% Yankees fans uh-huh. and 3% Mets fans um, and 2% you know other. Uh-huh. And so I was in that other group and it really hardened me because 2003 was just the worst. Um, and so I was afraid to go to school the next day. <laughs> I was in high school. I'll never forget it. Uh, senior year in high school, I had to wear like a Yankees jacket because they lost. <laughs> Just so that up. scarred me, uh, but it made 2004 all the more, more sweeter. So um, one of yeah. one of my best friends from college uh, uh, grew up in New Jersey, right outside the city, and uh, his wife was from a suburb of Boston. And uh, when they when they were planning their wedding, uh, I don't know if it was sort of explicit or if it was just implied, but pretty much his family was like, "We're not going to a wedding in Boston," and her family was like, "Well, we're not going to a wedding in New York City." So they yeah. got mar- so they got married in New Haven, Connecticut, because it was like oh. halfway in between. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, right there on ninety five, where the Yaleys are. Yeah, yeah. New Haven. Uh, the New Haven Ravens, I believe, were the baseball team back in uh, when I was growing up. Yeah, New Haven. The home of the best pizza in the country um, at uh, Pepe's uh, is Pepe's Pizza. That's New Haven. If you're ever in New Haven, go go grab some Pepe's for we'll sure. Check it out next time I'm through there. Um, yeah. So uh, last question. Won't take up too much more of your time, but uh, I've always sort of finished with this when I have people on the show for the first time. Um, I'm always curious about what people watch when they're watching a game. And, um, you know, for you who's who's at games and I assume also watching from home frequently, um, what do you pay attention to during the game? Um, are you thinking, uh, you know, as somebody who works with stats, are you thinking about statistics and statistical storylines as you're watching the game? Um, and then maybe how does uh, how does uh, what you watch at the game in person vary, you know, f- from when you're at home on your couch? Uh, you know where I really dork out about, like I get really dorky about it, <laughs> is um, coaches, watching coaches. Huh. Um, because it's this kind of – we always talk about the players and yet you have this conductor on the sidelines trying to get them to do what you want um, and they're barking out all these orders that you just don't hear on TV. And so it's this whole in-person in, um, experience that you can't get from watching at home is what the coaches are saying, which coaches are saying it and it's this whole like ballet act that you know this guy shouts out the defensive orders and this guy shouts out like motivational things to their players <laughs> so when i'm at the games um i try to pay attention to the coaches as much as possible because i feel like you learn a lot by what they're screaming out what matters um and you don't really get that when you're watching on tv so when i'm at games i if i ever get i've only sat courtside like maybe a handful of times cuz at the heat arena you're up like you know 40 rows mm-hmm. in radio row but the the very rare times you get get the golden ticket you sit by the court uh i feel like a kid in a candy store just hearing all the brilliant coaches bark out their orders and just it 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 kind of brings it all to life and it's uh it's definitely something um that I won't take for granted because you never know how much how many years left we'll be able to listen to Greg Popovich yell at Tim Duncan, you know. <laughs> yeah. So um, that that would be my answer for what I watch for in games is the uh, is the ballet of the coaches screaming out orders and running around frantically, uh, sweating their tail off um, at, at NBA games. It's still it's still fun to watch because the, these guys. It matters so much. You can tell they they are sleepless after a loss. Even after a win, they are they are thinking they just they got lucky and everything is gonna just 
fall apart in their next game. So you really, <laughs> when you're in, when you're at games, you really have an appreciation for how hard these coaches work. Right. Well, that seems like uh, uh, as good a place to stop as any. Uh, Tom, thank you so much uh, for making the time for this. I uh, really enjoyed it, and uh, hopefully, we can uh, have you back on again, maybe as we're getting closer to the playoffs. Awesome, would be uh, more than happy to, and go Sox.